Hey, it's Eric Hulkerin, and welcome to another episode of Behind the Headlines. On this episode, we talk to Shayna Roth. She is an environmental reporter for MLive. She also is a former prosecuting attorney and an author whose book, Cold Cases, A True Crime Collection, just dropped in July. For me, it was just all gut. It was looking through the, I started by looking through all the information that I could find, uh, you know, different newspaper articles, uh, different things that have been written or podcasts or documentaries. And it was whenever I would be reading through this and I would either have a feeling or have a question and go, ah, I don't think I'm seeing, I'm not seeing that being asked or thought about in any other way. So in any of other uh, works and things that I'm reviewing, and so with the Zodiac, that my sort of overarching theme for him is that he's actually a coward. And welcome back to Behind the Headlines. Now, typically, this would be the point in the show where I introduce my co-host, Vice President of Content, John Heiner, but he is on vacation. So instead, I will introduce the guest today, which is a, a dear friend of mine. Shana and I go back a long, long way. Shayna Roth is the type of person that if you find yourself during COVID thinking, there's no way that I can do just one more thing in the day, her resume will give you pause. Former prosecuting attorney, political reporter at Michigan Radio, adjunct professor at Aquinas College, newly a mother, part of the MLive environmental beat, and of course, we will talk about the book that just dropped as she is an author. Shayna Roth, welcome to Behind the Headlines, busiest human that I know. <laughs> Thank you so much. I, I do take pride in being busy, as my husband will tell you. <laughs> so I want to start with, you obviously do investigative journalism for MLive, and you've been on maternity leave. And so the first question I want to ask you is, when you come back from being kind of unplugged for a couple months, how do you reset your brain to tackle what things first. Yeah. So it was very interesting when actually when I came back, I'm now focused on the environment. Um, that was sort of a change that happened while I was on maternity leave. MLive, you know, did a lot of internal restructuring to 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 really hone in on, on some big topics. And I was chosen to work with Garrett on the environmental team. And so it was actually kind of worked out great because when I came back and was like, I don't know what's going on. Everybody else was like, that's okay. You have a new beat. So we weren't expecting you to know what was going on. I'm like, yes, yes, that's what's going on. That, that's why I'm not, not sure what's going on. It's because I, I have a new beat. Um, so I mean, well, you know, when I came in, it was a lot of just sitting down initially for the first few days, weeks and, and trying to figure out what are the big issues. I mean, the environment is such a massive topic, particularly in Michigan, where we have the Great Lakes. We have, you know, PFAS concerns. We've got so much going on right now when it comes to the environment. And a lot of it was just trying to get caught up and reading the reporting of a lot of really great reporters like Garrett and a lot of really great pieces from MLive to kind of help me get back into the swing of things. And then, you know, it came time to just sit down and start writing some stuff. It was like, oh gosh, how do I do this again? Like, how do I write a lead and how do I put all this stuff together? But, you know, Shannon, my my editor has been very understanding and very wonderful about being like, hey, you know, it's it's okay. We could, we could take a few days on this piece. It's no big deal. And so Shana, as a journalist during a global pandemic, civic unrest mm -hmm. and the poisoning of most of the water supplies in and around 
the globe. I mean, I know you don't cover the globe, mm-hmm. but you take my meaning. <laughs> what is your day like, day to day, kind of navigating through all of that stuff and working from home, right? As we're doing this, you're essentially recording in a closet. I'm recording in a basement. What is your day to day like as a journalist? So day to day is it's just so much screen time. Uh, you know, it is we've gone from being able to go out and speak to people to really just bringing them to our screens. Um, So a lot of it is scrolling through different news outlets to see what's going on, what needs a deeper dive. It is uh, checking in with Garrett uh, to see, you know, what is he tackling? What does he think I should be working on? Uh, because he's been doing this so much longer than I have. He has this ton of this institutional knowledge and he'll be like, hey, you know, I saw that this thing happened during this this hearing or this meeting. Uh, I don't have time for it. But maybe you want to take a closer look at it. Um, and then what I've been doing is, you know, the legislature is kind of starting to come back, kind of not. Uh, so I've been keeping an eye on what they've been doing. I just wrapped up a piece about the commercial fishing industry and what's going on with them and some legislation that they are very concerned about. Um so it's it's a lot of you know combing through things, checking things out, seeing where things are at. Uh, environmentalists I have found are really big on having uh, webinars, <laughs> which is which is great because it <laughs> it helps get people up to speed and it's a good you know online resource. So I've been doing a lot of those. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's a lot of trying to juggle all these different topics and figure out, you know, what needs a longer piece, what needs a shorter piece, um, and just to make sure that all of our readers are kept informed. And so speaking of readers, you just did an episode of Mishmash where you were talking about the candidates, which is a little bit of a pivot mm-hmm. away from the environment. The topic was how these candidates are trying to reach their constituents without being able to physically touch them. Right. And so my question isn't so much how they're doing that, because you guys in the episode cover that wonderfully. My question is, what advice can you give to readers to kind of navigate through this political climate when they're trying to figure out what's going on and they're missing some of those in-person events where they might be able to get a better view or a better grasp on a candidate who can't come door to door or can't hold a rally in your town? You know, what advice can you give them as how to navigate as we get towards the August elections and then again in November. Yeah, I mean, watch for the creative efforts of candidates. You know, this is something that Jake and I uh, talk about quite a bit and have been very interested in following through our show, Mishmash. You know, this is a time when everybody has to get creative. Sports has to get creative. uh, Reporters have to get creative. And right now, candidates have to get creative. So they might not be willing or able to send volunteers to come to your door, but check their Facebook pages, check their social media. They're probably going to be doing a lot of those virtual events, like different Zoom meetings, like Zoom town halls. I've been seeing a ton of those. So, you know, check them out. And, you know, this is actually a great time to really focus on what are you looking for in a candidate and then do your own research since you can't necessarily go and see them face to face go comb through their history, you know, look for old articles about them. What have they been up to? What do they say their track record is? And then, you know, maybe fact check that a little bit. Uh, MLife has been doing a ton of great reporting on a lot of different races. It's a great resource for you to go through. I know that they've been doing uh, different, you know, write-ups on the different candidates, you know, read through those and see, you know, what do you like and, and what's good. And once you figure out, you know, it's kind of nice because there is a lot of voting by, by mail going on right now. So once you figure out like, hey, this is my person, this is who I want to vote for, you don't have to wait around until election day necessarily. You can just send your ballot in and then 
you know, you're good. You can you can take a take a take a breather <laughs> until the next election. You've done democracy. For exactly. Today. You, you, ha- you have whatever. democratized. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> Shayna Roth is joining us. Uh, not only does she work the environment beat for MLive, but she is also an author. And that's really where I want to uh, move on to right now. Your book came out. It's Cold Cases, a true crime collection. I want to ask you questions about process here mm-hmm. in a second. But the first thing I want to ask is books to me have some sort of Harry Potter magic to them, unlike any other medium, where it feels like, and and I think you can appreciate this, because you have done television, you have done radio, you've clearly done print, but books feel different. And this book clearly has your voice in it. And so as an author, how long does it take to kind of get specifically to the Black Dahlia story, which sort of seems like that's quintessential your voice i don't know if that's mm-hmm. fair or not but no, i think it is <laughs> you know how do you how do you find that voice and then make sure it extends through all of the cases that you have that's a really good question and that's something that i struggle with when i write fiction right now you know this was kind of an easier way to go about it because it was uh it was nonfiction. so all of the the information was out there i just had to find it and then i just had to sort of tell it in an interesting way and my approach to this was for it to be conversational. It I, When I was writing it, I was just sort of imagining this is how I would talk about this case to a friend while we're having a beer or we're having coffee. Uh, so I was able to really just sort of be myself with this book, which is really nice because, you know, a lot of times with, with my day-to-day journalism, I'm trying to, you know, put forward the facts and the information in an interesting way, but, you know, I got to kind of hone in my, my personality on that a bit. And this allowed me to just sort of really just be me and to just talk about these cases and to kind of dig into, you know, Hey, this investigation was totally botched and here's why, and here's my problem with how the media handled this case. Uh, it was really, it was really a nice exercise in that. And I think that as far as figuring out how to go about that, I just, it was one of the few writing experiences where I just kind of let my brain go and just let my fingers do the work in a way. So at what point, Shana, do you know, because these cases obviously are super famous, what point do you know that you have an angle on these to tell a different story so it's not just another book about the Black Dahlia or a book about Zodiac or D.B. Cooper? Like, where where do you come from with your angle, specifically the Zodiac chapter? As I was reading that chapter, again... It's got a unique voice. It's got a unique way in which you tell the story as it sort of dances between what feels like police report reporting and a narrative that you might find in fiction. And so at what point do you discover, here's how I'm going to tell these stories? That's a really good question that I actually haven't been asked uh, to explain. And I think for me, it was just all gut. It was looking through the, I started by looking through all of the information that I could find, uh, you know, different newspaper articles, uh, different things that have been written or podcasts or documentaries. And it was whenever I would be reading through this and I would either have a feeling or have a question and go, ah, oh, I don't think I'm seeing, I'm not seeing that being asked or thought about in any other way. So in any of the other uh, works and things that I'm reviewing, and so with the Zodiac, that can, my sort of overarching theme for him is that he's actually a coward. 
and that he's this crazy control freak who at the end of the day uh, is is too scared of being caught. And that sort of came about as I was reading through it. And when I got to the final case that uh, the final uh, uh, case that he did, uh, which was a taxi cab driver. And then I was reading through and I'm like, oh, that was that was the end of it. And he was still kind of, you know, uh, sending letters to reporters and things like that. I'm like, oh, well, he probably stopped because he he almost got caught. And if that's the case, then this guy's really actually, you know, kind of scared of, of what he's doing. And, you know, with Elizabeth Short and with the Black Dahlia, as I was reading through the different news articles, I found that her identity was just really being stripped down to what happened to her and this idea that she was just some sort of wandering transient uh you know loose woman and i'm like why why is that her narrative why are we saying that about her why is that what everybody was thinking of her at the time um so yeah so it was really just kind of as i was going through each case just looking for those moments where i was really curious and i was really questioning why we think of a case in a certain way or you know a question would come up that i couldn't find answers to and how much of your prosecuting background do you think helps you when you're trying to find an angle not only in a in a true crime sense but even when you're writing stories for MLive oh it helps a lot I mean it really helps with with explaining things to people because when I was a prosecutor I would have to you know give openings and closings to juries and juries are you want to make sure that they're able to understand what can be a very complex set of facts and complex law, depending on what the crimes are. Uh, you want to make sure that they can understand it no matter what their education is. Um, so that is something that I have always tried to do in my writing is to ensure that it can be the most complicated thing that is going on in our state legislature or with the environment or with this crime. I'm going to explain it to you in a way that makes sense. So a lot of times I will run things by, uh, you know, people that I know don't follow a topic and I'll be like, Hey, let me, let me explain this to you. And if they understand it, even though they have, they have no point of reference for it, then I'm like, okay, I've succeeded. I did that with this book quite a bit is I would, you know, run these ideas by different people who aren't as interested in true crime. And they're like, Oh yeah, no, I'd read about that. That, that might be kind of interesting. Um, so when I get that, oh, yeah, that's that's when I know I got him. I, I would say at some point this year, I think around February, you did an interview with the Michigan State Communications School, and they asked you a question about, you know, what was the a pivotal moment in your career? And you answered that decision to move from prosecuting attorney into journalism. But I want to ask you about what was the pivot to go, I'm a journalist, and now I want to write nonfiction crime stories. Oh, and then I'm going to move into fiction. What is what is that? <laughs> What's that career arc like and and where does when does that itch show up? Yeah, I've I have always loved writing. So in in college I was an English major and a writing minor and I think I always saw myself as writing fiction and I never really I wasn't really sure like what types of fiction stories would work for me and which types of fiction stories should I tell. And eventually I realized that my interest is is crime. That's why I became a prosecutor. Uh, you know, that's why I watch, you know, Goodfellas 18 million times. I mean, like I, I, I'm, I'm a crime junkie in a lot of ways and not just, you know, your normal uh, and not just sort of like the run of the mill, like, oh, murders and serial. No, I, I love it all. I love heists. I, I, you know, I love a good bank robbery story. Um, 
And so I think it was kind of a natural progression in a way where it was, here's this one interest. And then here is my, you know, sort of journalism uh, experience that I have been cultivating for the last few years. And then when Ulysses Press approached me to write this book, it, it really kind of just felt like a natural fit. It was this sort of really physical, it has become this sort of really physical embodiment of my career for the last few years because it takes that crime background and that writing experience that I've been working on uh, for years and years and, and puts it together in a book. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's, and, and it's just, I guess the best way to answer is just like, this is just stuff I've been working on on the side for, for just a hobby and an interest for, for a very long time. And I got fortunate enough to be able to, to turn it into a book that, that sits on bookshelves. Which is amazing, you know, to be able to, I am serious, to be able to see you in a bookstore holding your book, I can only imagine what an amazing feeling that actually is. It's great. It was nice to just be in a bookstore. I mean, it was kind of, <laughs> I mean, it's it, the times that we're in, I, I, I got like, we walked in and I was just overwhelmed, not just by the, oh my God, my book is over there on the shelf, but just like, I'm in a store. This is the first time I've been in a store in months. And it was just wild on so many accounts. You obviously whittled this down from a lot. I mean, there's a, a trillion of these cases, mm -hmm. these large scale cases that um, have some element of coldness to them. What was the process first of getting the ones that were going to be in the book? And then what was the story arc that you wanted to make with the order by which they show up? The there were f about four cases that the publisher really wanted to include. They wanted to include the Black Dahlia. They wanted to include the Zodiac. They wanted to include the Golden State Killer, and they wanted to include, uh, I believe, it was John Benet Ramsey. Now, not to cut you off, but yeah. were these cases that would have been high on your list anyway without the publisher's input? I think so. I, I really do. I maybe not the Zodiac because I know that that one has gotten just that that case has just exploded over the years. You know, there's there's movies, there's documentaries, there's podcasts, there's everything. Uh, I tried to find a really different way to approach that case. And so that one actually became a challenge. So I'm glad they wanted to include that because that became a really interesting challenge for me. Um, so I, I, I knew that I had those four cases to work with. And then I just kind of went about trying to find the most interesting cases that I could. And I wanted a mix of ones that were really well known, uh, but also ones that maybe people hadn't heard of. So, and I also wanted a mix of, of different types of cold cases. So the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist became a great example of that. It's, it's a museum art heist um, that not a lot of people outside of Boston are familiar with. Um, and then there's also the Freeway Phantom, which is a case from the Washington, D.C. area. A serial killer is believed to have murdered and raped, uh, I think it was six or seven young black girls and left their bodies on the side of a highway and on this stretch around like Maryland and Washington, D.C. And that's a case that is not very well known. It has not survived the test of time like the Zodiac has. We don't really think about those cases. So I was trying to find cases that kind of spoke to each other in that way. Um, there is a collection of them, the uh, Black Dahlia or Elizabeth Short case, John Benet Ramsey and uh, Natalie Holloway. Um, those are three cases that I thought really form this interesting trinity of how the media treats victims and how the media thinks of, uh, you know, who gets to be a victim and who are we going to choose to care about because we tend to focus a lot on uh, beautiful white women and when they are or girls and when they are missing or when they are murdered we become fascinated with them 
but maybe not so much other types of uh, victims. And so those three cases kind of spoke to the freeway phantom case. Um, so there was a lot of kind of balancing that out and kind of seeing what cases speak to each other. And then there's some that were just uh, really interesting cases that I wanted to include and are kind of a, um, not a palate cleanser, but they just kind of work in that, in that in-between space, in-between chapters. So for example, the, um, the Cleveland Torso Murders chapter is really about Elliot Ness and how we now remember him as, you know, Kevin Costner in The Untouchables and how he brought down Al Capone, but he died feeling that he was a failure. And so, because he couldn't solve this one case. And so that chapter is really about the one that got away and how that uh, impacts law enforcement. So I, I spent a lot of time just figuring out what cases are really going to speak to each other and then the right order became, you know, how are they going to play off of each other and how are they going to speak to each other and kind of comment on each other? As you're going through this process, what was, was there a case or a moment that stood out that you were surprised by a piece of information that you sort of uncovered? Um, the Elliot Ness thing was very surprising to me. I did not, I, I knew him mostly as, like I said, Kevin Costner in The Untouchables. I knew him as, as being that guy that helped bring down Al Capone. I had no idea when I read his, his, uh, biography that he died poor an alcoholic at his kitchen sink. Uh, it was, it was really surprising to me. And it was because this case just kind of ruined him. He just couldn't solve it. And there were so many people that, uh, died in that area at that time. And I thought that was really, su- just really, really surprising to me. Also, all of the Michigan connections to D.B. Cooper, I was very surprised that there's so many people, <laughs> there's so many theories about that D.B. Cooper came from Michigan. I thought that was pretty, <laughs> pretty interesting. The book is out. You've been doing some promotion interviews just like this. What is, what's next for you? You talked about fiction. Are you working on another project and can you talk about it or is it another project that we will just save for later? I I'm working on it. It's, you know, the the fiction side of of my writing is still very much uh you know, I don't have an agent. It's it's for me to hopefully work on at some point. Um so yeah, so I'm I'm open to to all possibilities. Uh I would love to write more true crime, more nonfiction. Uh, and, and we'll, we'll just see, I just, you know, when I find those, those minutes and those hours, I just sit down at the computer. Sometimes there's a kid at my, at my feet, just, you know, babbling around and, you know, I just try and try and crank out what I can. So Shana, you're also an adjunct professor of journalism. Uh, and we are in a, I think it, the understatement of the year, a very interesting time for journalists and journalism as you're teaching journalism, what, what feedback are you getting from the students? How do they feel about where news is the state of media right now? And and what are you telling them? Even before COVID happened, you know, a lot of the feedback that I got from students was concerned about the fact that, you know, there's so much out there where people get their quote unquote news that, you know, how, how do we ensure that we are being trusted? How do we write good journalism and, and ensure that we're working for a good and reputable outlet to, uh, yeah, to, to just make the public trust us? I mean, I think a lot of them were getting very disheartened by, you know, the idea of fake news and that there's so much out there, so much criticism out there of the media. And, you know, I just kept telling them that all you can do is focus on you and focus on, you know, doing your duty as a journalist to get the truth out there and to speak to the people and ensure that they know what's going on so that they can make informed decisions. 
And one of the things that you and I have talked about a, a number of times is this idea of media literacy. And so I sort of want to wrap up here um, as somebody who has been in this industry for a long time and has watched this shift to where we are right now for the, the citizenry of the United States, specifically Michigan, because that's where you and I are. What are some tips that you can give people to make sense of their world and understand how media is either manipulating them or not manipulating them or how they can understand what they're actually reading as opposed to just consuming headlines and then regurgitating that down the line, right, which is which tends to happen a lot in social yeah, I mean, that's the number one thing is to read beyond the headline, right? To like actually click on it and do your homework and read the entire piece is is number one is very vital. And I think, you know, in this age where everybody has a million things to do and we have a very short attention span, it's easy to just fall into that. Um, my other big piece of advice for everybody is to just not in the coronavirus sense, in the news sense, to get outside of your bubble, to read uh, from a multitude of different sources, you know, I mean, I think it's easy for people to be like, you know, this is where I get my news. This is the only place I get my news. And you're not going to get everything from that. You know, you might not get the, even if it's a great news outlet, you should still be looking at other places just to see, you know, what is the other side saying? What is this, you know, cohort of people talking about and thinking about? And if you disagree with them, that's great because that's helping you to sort of keep your mind fresh and to keep thinking about uh, why you believe what you believe and challenging that. A thing that you really want to make sure that you're doing too is checking your sources. You want to make sure that the information that you're getting is is factual. And it's in, uh, one of the best ways to do this is to essentially just do a Google search of the, what this one outlet is telling me. What are other outlets saying about this same uh, set of events or or circumstances? And it's a, it can be a pretty good indication if they're telling you, you know, the sky is turning green, and they're the only outlet that's telling you that. It's probably a good indication that that that's not a very honest thing that's happening, and that maybe that's not a good outlet for you to be looking at. Shana Roth, thank you for uh, spending a couple minutes with behind the headlines this week go do your important work that isn't <laughs> hanging out talking to me. Uh, this has been so much fun and a wonderful break. Thank you. And there she goes. A big thanks to Shana Roth for joining us on Behind the Headlines this week. As always, there's a couple things you can do for John and I if you like what you are hearing. One, you can take the podcast and you can put it in a playlist on Spotify. If you're on Apple or Google, if you could give us a review, that would be amazing. And then if you have friends that would like to hear the podcast, if you could share it with them, that would be awesome. Have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you next week. I am Eric Hulkerin. He is on vacation, but he is still John Heiner. And this is Behind the Headlines.